we wanted to uh, ask what metabolic characteristics of certain organisms make them um, attractive to you uh, in biology applications like which organisms would you avoid versus you know find useful so i i and my team always work with microorganisms that can produce some benefit to society so we call them beneficial microbes um, so when we're talking about bioremediation you want microorganisms that can somehow destroy contaminants or change their oxidation state, which are the two things that microbes can do. So of course, if they can destroy contaminants or change them in a way that they're not toxic anymore, which is one of the things that some of the microorganisms that I've been working with since my PhD, so it's more than 20 years, um, do. That's obviously what we want microbes to do too. Microbes that can clean our water are amazing, of course. And so you mentioned um, that my team has done work with um, bioremediation. Also, we've done some work with bioenergy. And now we do a lot of work in the gut microbiome. Yes. For bioremediation, we look for microorganisms that can either change the oxidation state of the contaminant when that makes it not toxic, destroy the contaminant, or change the contaminant in a way that it's not toxic anymore. That's enough. And so for bioenergy, I worked for a while with uh, Professor Cesar Torres, and he works with microbial fuel cells. He works with microorganisms that can produce electricity or hydrogen. So that's, that's pretty cool. And we still work with a lot of microorganisms that can produce methane. That's another source of energy. And so obviously, those are the metabolic capabilities that we look for when we are working with bioenergy. And the third area that you mentioned, which is the human gut, we look for microorganisms that are beneficial to the host. We look for microorganisms that either protect us from pathogens or microorganisms that help us break um, the food that we eat, microorganisms that make vitamins for us and elements that we need and microorganisms that um, produce um, certain chemicals um, that act as beneficial signals. To the host. So those are the metabolic capabilities that I look for in microbes. So when you're constructing somewhat of a maybe an artificial environment where these microorganisms uh, flourish the best, what factors go into creating this environment and um, what precautions do you need to take? And um, also how do you make sure like your organisms are happy and healthy? Yeah, so we want them happy and healthy. You touch a very important point. We want microbes to be happy and healthy, so they'll do their job. So they'll be happy doing their job. And so what we try to do is, as much as we can, is first of all, understand what they need to be happy, which is part of our research, right? Because if you can understand what a certain microbe that will be the best worker needs in order to do their job, then you provide that and then they're happy. So that's number one. And that's 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 the line of research that we do sometimes, you know, understand what are the requirements of certain microbes in order for them to be happy. Um, I would say there are certain things that are really important for microbes that we try to emulate, stimulate, or do something similar to their environment in the lab. And this is oxygen. So some microorganisms are anaerobic, they're very sensitive to oxygen, and if there's any oxygen, they will not do well at all. And most of the microorganisms that we work with in my lab are anaerobes. So we have a lot of techniques in order to remove the oxygen and make sure that there's not oxygen wherever we're growing them. 
pH is very important. You want to put microorganisms at the right pH because otherwise they will not be happy and they will not thrive. And nutrients, they need their food, they need their nutrients. And very important, people don't often think about this, but I do, friends. It is easier to grow the microbes with their friends than in isolation. And so I will give you an example. The, the microbes that I work with during my PhD, these are anaerobic microbes that can take um, chlorinated solvents, compounds that are chlorinated, which is one of the most common groundwater contaminants in the United States and in Arizona. And what they'll do is they will respire on these chlorinated solvents the same way that we use oxygen. They will dump electrons into these chlorinated solvents and they will take out the chlorines. And then these chlorinated solvents that are very toxic, once you take out the chlorines, it's ethene or ethylene, which is what a banana produces when they're getting ripe. So it's not toxic like trichloroethane or dichloroethane or perchloroethane, which are these chlorinated solvents that are very abundant and toxic. When you, the, these microorganisms that can respire on these chlorinated solvents, the name of the main uh, genera that can do it is dialococoides. When you grow dialococoides in isolation, alone, without their friends in the lab, they grow slower and they break down these chemicals in a slower you know, way. When you have them in a mixed culture with their friends, they do this in a faster way and they can grow more and they can grow faster. So friends are also very important for microbes because friends provide some nutrients and some vitamins and some things that sometimes you can't give to the microbes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's certainly very interesting uh, to consider just making sure that you're not just targeting the organisms itself, but also um, the organisms they're living with. So for the systems you work with, what, well, let's say it this way, um, what are signs that sometimes your um, organisms are not behaving regularly and what, how, how do biologists or how do engineers work around these issues? Like, do generally you would have to like, remove the entire culture or what adjustments and modifications can you make along the process to optimize uh, the behavior of your organisms? Yeah, so the signs are some of the things that I mentioned, pH, for example, we measure pH and if the pH is going too low, for example, or the pH is going too high, you know that there's something not working the way you want it and that this can damage your microbes and your culture. We also normally measure what they're eating. And so we normally provide them a source of food and we normally have a way to measure what they're eating and how fast they're eating it and if they're eating it or not. And then we also normally, when we talk about bioremediation, we're monitoring these chemicals and if these chemicals are changing or not. And so it's important also to make sure that when you're doing bioremediation, you normally either use microbes that are already in the groundwater, you just stimulate them. It's called biostimulation. You give them food, you make them happy and they'll do the job if they're already there. 
if there's not enough of the right microbes that you need, we do something that is called bioaugmentation, which is we add the microbes, we still need to add food. So whenever people talk about bioaugmentation, you're still doing bioaugmentation and biostimulation because you're adding the microbes, but you're also sending them food. Because if you send them without their food, they're not going to be happy and they're not going to do their job. But regardless, we normally take samples to measure the food, to measure the chemicals, and we normally also make sure that the microbes are growing. And sometimes that's easy. Sometimes in order to be able to see if those microbes are growing, it's not so trivial. And so one of the things that my lab has done also for many years is we use DNA-based methods to do that. So we will bring a sample from the, from the site where they're doing bioremediation and we'll extract DNA and we can see how many of these microbes are there in the beginning. And if they're growing, if they're multiplying, if we're getting more of them, if they're attaching or if they're being washed out, all of these questions are really important to control, you know, a process. Yeah, so actually, would you like to elaborate on some of these genomic analysis techniques that you can apply to identify between different types of organisms? Yeah, so you can, there's, there's very different, uh, like, you, like you mentioned, there are different techniques. So there are some that, for example, one that we use often to see if these microbes are growing is something that it's called quantitative polymerase chain reaction. And this technique targets a specific gene. And so what you do is you extract DNA and with that specific gene, targets a specific gene and, and there's an increase in a, a fluorescence response if there's more of the gene. So you can quantify if you have more of that gene. That's, that's very specific and very targeted. You need to know what you're looking for. So for example, I measure, measure, me mentioned the allococoides. And so there's an essay for the allococoides that ha goes to the general 16S, which is a marker for bacteria. There are others for some of the genes that encode for their enzymes to see that you have the right population, for example. But that will give you very specific information on something that you already know. Another tool that we use a lot in order to understand better the systems, because sometimes we don't understand the system so well, are what we call uh, high throughput sequencing. And so we take a DNA sample and we try to sequence a signature gene, which is the 16S rRNA gene in bacteria. And this signature gene will tell us who is there? Who are the microbes that are in the sample? It doesn't tell us what they're doing, but at least it gives us an idea of who's in the sample. And if the conditions change, how is that changing? And then one thing that we just started doing more recently is something that we call metagenomics, which is sequencing all the DNA. We extract the DNA and we sequence all the DNA. The DNA and this way, we get more information about which microbes are there and not only which microbes are there, but which are the genes that encode for some of these degradation capabilities, right? So which are the possibilities of metabolism? And these are just possibilities because we're still talking about DNA. And DNA is just the menu of the different functions that the microbes can have. It doesn't mean that they will all happen. But it's just a menu of possibilities. And so we do this and we do this for, for Lately, more for the human gut microbiome, but we've done this for all the other systems that you mentioned. Yeah, that's wonderful. So certainly there's a lot of sequencing that goes on with um, 
and like you mentioned fluorescence which i suppose is making certain genes glow because of uh something you bind onto them would that be correct yep all right um yeah this would be really interesting imagining a world where you have scientists doing analysis literally by making things uh glow it's probably pretty <laughs> beautiful um and so i know that you have research in both environmental applications and also in the gut microbiome so um the team at asu that's working on uh bioremediation obviously we want to remove arsenic from water for the sake of human health so when we're talking about kind of the intersection between um, environment and human health would you say your lab has any of that specific intersection and also um, when you introduce the idea that you're working for a product ultimately um, that directly impacts human health are there any special precautions that are taken? So I think my lab is exactly at the intersection of human health because of the microbiome and exposures because of the chemicals that we've dealt with. Um, and so even though I have separate students, students that work on bioremediation and students that work on the gut microbiome, um, they learn from each other and they learn from the tools and the techniques and from the principles that are so important that some of them are similar. But moving forward, my team is actually pursuing projects where we look at how the human microbiome can have an effect on chemicals that we're exposed with too. And so we, uh, we have our next uh, project coming has something to do with that, with how the gut microbiome can affect chemicals we are exposed to. Mm -hmm. All right, back to your bioremediation part of your lab. You mentioned a lot about using the microbes to convert uh, the oxidation state to kind of change it into a less toxic form. So uh, does, your, does your lab work with any like capture where the organisms themselves capture the contaminants even while they're still toxic? Or would, um, would you say it's mostly just uh, through the breakdown process and yeah. what would be cons and pros of either side? Yeah, so the problem of microorganisms capturing something that is toxic is that when it's something that is really toxic, it's toxic for them too. So normally microorganisms have a mechanism to change this toxic chemical into something less toxic. So I will, I will give you an example because you mentioned the oxidation state. So um, one of my PhD students right now is working with chromium. Chromium at the oxidation state of chromium-6 is very toxic and it's very mobile in the groundwater. So it's in the groundwater and it goes everywhere and it's very toxic. If you're able to reduce it to chromium-3, which is what he's been doing with microbes, first of all, it's, it becomes less soluble, so it pre precipitates. Second of all, that's less toxic. Um, if you put too much chromium, the microbes will not be able to do what I'm just telling you because it's toxic for them. It, it's, it's toxic for us, it's toxic for them. But you ask an excellent question because there are some pollutants that microbes don't really change. Sometimes it, they just absorb it, you know, like it goes in their walls or it kind of goes to be part of the biomass. Um, 
but my student has shown, my PhD student actually, Sri Vatsan is his first name, has shown that these microorganisms are actually reducing chromium. They're not just sorbing it, they're reducing it and they're precipitating it, which is very helpful because then you remove it from the water. Yeah, and then you don't have to deal with the uh, as much of the issue of disposing contaminated biomass. Um, so you talked about chromium as one of the particular pollutants you like to remove from water. So are there any water quality issues that you think are most pressing? And which ones are best addressed through bioremediation versus other means like you know, mechanically um, or with just inorganic systems? So I would say, in my opinion, one of the best examples of bioremediation being really useful is chlorinated solvents, which is the first thing that I mentioned. And it's, it's a great example of how understanding the microbiology and enhancing what these microbes need can help for bioremediation. And so trichloroethane is one of the most abundant groundwater pollutants in the United States. It's very abundant in the state of Arizona. And um, there's companies that sell cultures of these microbes that I mentioned to you with their friends. So you can inject them and do bioremediation. And so it has been proven to be a very successful way of, of removing this. And one, one of the reasons why I personally feel that it's so good and so successful or there's two, one, it's a green technology. You're not, you could go and oxidize or burn whatever is in there. That's not very green. But number two, one of the amazing things with chlorinated solvents is that, as I mentioned before, these microorganisms change the parent compound into something that it's not toxic anymore. So you don't need to deal with hazardous stuff anymore. The microorganisms do all the job. And so it's, it, it's, it's a pretty amazing um, system. Um, microorganisms have been used a lot for bioremediation of um, petrochemicals, like gasoline too. They can do that too. They're, they're, they're pretty successful on that. And metals, like I mentioned, chromium. Um, that's a little bit trickier because they don't really destroy the chromium because you can't destroy metals. All you can do is oxidize them or reduce them. And in this case, by reducing chromium, um, we achieve removal from the, from the groundwater, which is great. And that happens with many different metals too, not just with chromium. All right. Um, in bioremediation, when you're dealing with contaminated waters, uh, how often are, I mean, obviously in a lab setting, you would need to have the water in the lab, but looking forward into the applications in the world, um, how often would it be that the tech, like the organisms themselves are put into the water, uh, the source water versus the source water being pumped out and then filtered and then placed back into a perhaps a separate storage place? Um, and yeah, so what would be the difference? There's a, I would say this was a treatment that was super, um, famous or conventional when I was doing my PhD, it's called pump and treat. You pump the water out and you treat it outside of the, of the aquifer. Um, it's not very efficient. It's not very good. Uh, if you can do it, what we call in situ, which is having the microbes go down 
and clean it up where it is. It's a lot more efficient for many reasons. Number one, you save yourself some money and some energy by not having to pump out the water. That's number one. Um, number two, when you're pumping out the water, you are not really addressing the source of the contaminant, which can continue to provide contamination to the water. So you could pump and treat for years and years and years or decades. Um, so that's a challenge. Pump and treat is done. It's, 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 a, it's a technique that, it, that is done. And once you've gotten the water out, there are other techniques that you can also use to treat the water that has been pumped out. But in my opinion, for certain contaminants like, like chlorinated solvents, it's better to do the treatment in situ if possible. All right. And I guess going back to somewhat of the health intersection point, if you are introducing microorganisms to water that could potentially, you know, humans interact with and humans could even drink perhaps, um, and you know, there are regulations by the FDA, by other U.S. governmental agencies. So what, like, do, are there lists of organisms that you work with because they have already been approved, especially when you're treating things in situ? Um, how do you make sure that the microorganisms themselves do not interact badly with people who could come into contact with them? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this is one of the reasons why I don't work with genetically engineered microorganisms, because that makes a big difference. So the microbes that we work with are microbes that were originally in the groundwater or in the soil. So they're native to that environment. You were just making them grow a little bit more and making them happy. We're not, we're not bringing some foreign you know, bodies into the groundwater. Um, and it's done now, it's approved and it's done. Uh, one of the beauties of this treatment for chlorinated solvents, for example, is that once the chlorinated solvents are gone, these microbes will die off because they don't have their oxygen, they don't have their electron acceptor. So you don't have to worry about an overgrowth and an over, you know, of these microorganisms. Um, the, 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 the question you ask is actually, um, I, I find it interesting and I will almost say I find it funny because once I heard Dr. Perry McCarty, who is one of the founders of our bioremediation knowledge, you know, um, he was, I don't know if you know Dr. Bruce Rickman, but he was Dr. Bruce Rickman's PhD advisor. And so once I hear Perry McCarty giving a seminar and it really stuck that he said this, that they had a culture of microbes that had the alucocoides that I think came from California, but they were trying to inject it in Florida. And he said he had a lot of regulatory problems to inject microbes from California and Florida. And I found it really funny because they're also similar. Like if you go into the groundwater and you try to detect them there, they're cousins, they're also similar. So it doesn't make a difference to inject the dialococoides from Florida and California or from California and Florida. Um, because they're not genetically engineered, the regulation is um, easier. Yes, because it's not entirely if, if they, Yeah. If they were genetically engineered, then there's, the regulation becomes more challenging. That's my understanding, but I don't work with genetically engineered microbes, so that's just my understanding, um, that genetically engineered microbes are more 
uh, regulated. Yeah, because it's more unpredictable since it's never been mm-hmm. in that environment before. Certainly. Right. Um, yeah. So we. That's the other thing that we we my group really um, strives to do is to learn from nature and to um, use nature as our guide, you know, and our principles. Right. So. People ask me often about probiotics because I work with, with the gut microbiome. And I will tell you, I think one of the biggest challenges of the probiotics that you find on the shelf at Whole Foods or at any of these stores is that these are microbes, that their natural environment is dairy. It's not a human. So if we can in the future have probiotics that come from humans that the natural environment to begin with was a human i think that will be a lot more successful because you're putting microbes in their natural environment i am not saying that probiotics are bad i'm just saying that many times they don't colonize and there's a lot of things that they don't do the way we want them to do and possibly it's because you're not taking a microbe from the groundwater to put in the groundwater you're taking a microbe from dairy to put it in the gut of of a of a person right That's a big deal. Certainly, that makes a lot of sense.